The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, everyone ready for more dukkha? (laughs) (laughs) Seeking gratification in the world, practitioners, I had pursued my way. That satisfaction in the world I found. Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it with wisdom. So the Buddha never denied the very real pleasure in the world. He was good at being intimate, being aware, being awake to the very real pleasure that there is in the world. Seeking for drawbacks in the world, practitioners, I pursued my way. That misery, those drawbacks in the world, I found. Insofar as any misery, any drawbacks exist in the world, I have well perceived them by wisdom. Seeking for release from suffering, practitioners, I pursued my way. That release from the world I found. Insofar as a release from this world of, you know, this conditional world of gain and loss exists, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found, no gratification to be found in the world, beings would not be attached. So the fact that we're attached is because there is very real pleasure that we bump into. If there were no drawbacks to be found in the world, beings would not be disenchanted. So we do feel burnt, disenchanted, dispassionate, disappointed by life, betrayed even at times. If there were no release from the world, beings would not find release. So this is uh, is the Buddha paying attention, you know, his description of paying attention to gratification, the very real joys that arise and last for a while and, you know, are experienced as beautiful and pleasant and fulfilling in a limited way, but still meaningful in that limited way, right? Falling in love or raising children or you know some of the other wholesome pleasures in life they're not it's not really diminished by the fact that it's impermanent it's just actually knowing that it's impermanent is part of what makes it what it is having a good meal without being deluded that it's you know going to last forever or raising children knowing that they're going to grow up or being in relationship with our partner, a dear friend, knowing that, or even maybe more poignantly with some of our pets, because their lifespan is, you know, pretty short, general, you know, relatively. So, you know, we know, okay, we have 15 years to be together, to appreciate each other's company, and then it will be the inevitable letting go 
or the inevitable pain of loss. So being really clear about gratification, really clear all the way through, all the time through. I mean, it's just such a good metaphor for a practice to sort of be aware of the pleasure, be aware of the drawbacks of sense experience. Be interested in release, like how to be in this world of gain and loss, pleasure and pain. How to realize the heart that's free. What does freedom look like when in one moment it might be really pleasurable and another moment really painful? What does release look like? And that's really what the Buddha describes in this, you know, as he continues the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. So developing a more honest, intimate, personal relationship to suffering, like how it exists in our heart, that contraction. And so it doesn't matter what the um, cause for that personal experience of dukkha, but to be willing not to be confused by the trigger or the cause for that crunch in the heart, that weight, that subjective experience of suffering, but to be willing to learn from it. Like what is there, what can be learned? Or is it just better to ignore it? Or is it better to lash out? Or is it better, you know, what is the appropriate relationship to this psychic, this heaviness of my heart, this ache, this anxiety, this uneasiness? And of course, as I've been talking about and when has been talking about, you know, the Buddha made this front and center, that famous simile of, picking up a few leaves and comparing it to all the leaves in the forest. I could have taught you many things, you know, through my life, through my practice. I've come to know a lot, but I only, you know, I've trained myself to only talk about things related to suffering and the end of suffering. Why? Because that's what's relevant. That's what human beings actually care about. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? because it brings benefit and advancement in the holy life, and because it leads to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, Nibbana. So practitioners, let your task be this. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering, and this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And so that would be a a useful thing, I think, a a useful takeaway for us from this retreat as we move into our last day tomorrow, you know, just to see ourselves to kind of own, like they do, you know, in the 12-step tradition, some of you know, often at the beginning of meetings, hi, I'm Mark, and I'm an addict. You know, we could say, I'm Mark, or I'm whatever, and I'm a suffering being. You know, I'm a human being, I'm this living being that experiences suffering and it's relevant. And I don't want to forget that. 
it seems to make me a better human being to keep that in mind, to keep a, uh, to develop and maintain an honest relationship about that experience. And um, this is a real insight, this, you know, acknowledgement that, that suffering is. And not making it more than that, not claiming my suffering even. It's such an interesting thing. Like, and again, this isn't philosophical. This is actually what we're doing when we're practicing and we have something ordinary like knee pain or something a little bit more resonant like anxiety um, or even anger, whatever it might be that's tormenting the mind and heart. And just to, you know, it's like we don't realize that every single moment of our existence is a creative act. We, you know, we are participating in this very creative experience we call living. It's a creative experience. And so, like when we're feeling that knee pain or feeling that torment in the heart, I could be constructing, creating this personal, my pain, my anxiety, So when we say that there's an option, like I could see it as the anxiety, the pain. And it's not an abstraction. It actually allows us to be closer, more intimate. Because the idea that it's mine is actually a deflection. It's an obscuration or it's a confusion. It's not actually directly what we're experiencing. What we're experiencing is the pain, the ache, the restlessness, the uneasiness. And it's totally understandable that we might call it mine, me, mine, personalize it. But when we observe that enough times, we see that's always a defensive maneuver trying to protect somebody, trying to get somewhere. You know, it's, it's an acting out of some kind of war. So I know it can sound trivial, you know, in terms of my words now, but experiment with that attitude, you know. Oh, yeah, it's just the pain. Pain comes and it goes. All human beings experience anxiety. All human beings experience loneliness. All beings, living beings, know the experience of cold. And so in this creative act of being a sensitive living being and now receiving this particular joy or receiving, meeting this particular sorrow, you know, what owning the creative part of, you know, the reality in this moment, what's a skillful way to participate in this creation, you know, the creating the mind, creating the moment of this heart, this mind. You know, this, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier in one of the talks about just another thing in the forest. 
Or another way of saying that that I like is, oh yeah, this happens sometimes. You know, so whatever joy or sorrow has come our way, to just have a ready refrain like, oh yeah, when a being takes birth and has a mind and body, has a life, yeah, things like this happen. Joy arrives. Sorrow arrives. Sometimes it's like this. You see, so kind of normalizing and generalizing like, oh yeah, this comes with the territory of being a sensitive being, gain and loss. You see, it's like a, a way to move beyond the habit of my pain to, oh yeah, it happens like this sometimes. There's gain and then there's loss. There's joy and then there's sorrow. You know, we have that story of Tisa and the mustard seed, you know, where the Buddha asked somebody who was really suffering to go out into the community, you know, to do a task. But the point was to see that their suffering is like everybody else's suffering, not unique to them. And again, it's this is a very particular medicine. We have to use it at the right time in the right way. But it can be experienced as a put-down or a judgment when somebody's suffering to say, hey, you're not unique. You think this just happens to you, right? I mean, that could be adding more pain to somebody who's already really suffering. But in our own way, in the right way, in the right time, to realize the universality of the suffering can be very useful. Oh, yeah. Because then the mind, at least to some degree, doesn't waste its time with some version of, oh, poor me. Instead, it's very pragmatic. Whereas there's something I can do. Well, let me do that. Oh, there doesn't seem to be anything to do. Well, let me stay awake because that might change. And then I'll be ready to do something if there's something that can be done, like to speak up, for example. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes, depending on the particular kind of suffering we're in, involved in, there's nothing to say, nothing to speak up about. But regardless of whether there's something to say, something to do that might alleviate, or there's, as far as we can see, as far as we can understand, in this moment, nothing to do, nothing to say, regardless, it's very interesting, like, what needs to be added? Does anything need to be added? Either there's something we can do, let's do that. Let's see if that helps. Or there's nothing that we can do, at least as I see it. But there's still the question, so what do I do with the pain, the suffering, the hardness, the heaviness that remains? And this is really where we left off last night about um, the second noble truth, where the Buddha talks about, you know, he names the three kinds of craving. The grasping, the craving into grasping. 
into becoming. This is this thing that the Buddha really mapped out. When there's something unpleasant, we react by wanting it to last, acting on that wanting, that's the grasping, and becoming the one, becoming like being reborn at the next moment of mind is the me who wants this pleasant thing to last. And if it's an unpleasant experience, then the craving is like wanting to get rid of it, wanting not to feel it. And then we do something based on that wanting, and we become the one who did that thing. We take birth as the one who struggled to get rid of that painful thing. And then once we're a somebody, then we're in that tenuous existential place. Now I want to protect that somebody I am, right? We've that whole movement from having an experience that triggers craving, wanting, acting on the wanting, becoming the one who acted on it. So that becoming, that's the birth of that sense of separation. We've removed ourselves from the flow of life, from nature, in a sense, the movement of nature. And all of a sudden we have that, like fear of death and fear of being apart and feeling like we, I, me, need something. I need religion to get back to God or unity or nature. But we're in a pickle in the sense that we think we need to solve a problem that we don't actually understand. Because now we're solving the problem the self is, that sense of separation is, right? We have a painful experience. We want it to go away. We act on that wanting. That's the cause of suffering, the attachment to the desire and the acting on that attachment and the becoming of the one who acted on that. And then this thing apparently exists, and it has a life of its own. And on and on like that. It kind of cuts the groove, and on and on it goes. So the second um, noble truth is really getting very clear, seeing it tens of thousands of times, like really being competent at seeing, oh yeah, there's suffering, and it's a conditional happening. It's, it's a movement, right? It's a dynamic process happening right here in the body, heart, mind, this thing we call me. It's happening right here. The subjective experience of suffering is is uh, relevant. And it's really, it's hard because it means we have to take our attention away from the story of suffering, whatever that story is, into what is it, what's the experience here in the heart? What's the ache, the hurt here? Because when we're there, when we're grounded in that experience, that's really the end of the first noble truth. There is dukkha. It's relevant. It should be understood. It has been understood, right? And we're just able to be right there, curious, relatively stable. 
not trying to fix. And precisely because we're not trying to fix it, we're seeing it as a teacher, we see, oh, this is a lawful conditional dynamic. And it's all about right, the origin, the causes for the subjective experience of suffering is this attachment to this identification with this process of having an experience as a sensitive being, that experience triggering wanting, wanting leads to acting on the wanting, becoming the person who acted, becoming a person, a separate entity that does things to get away from pain, to get closer to pleasure. So we see that enough times and we discern the moment where the sensitive being senses something and sees that there's a choice. Taking that, right, because when we have pain, there's a mechanism already in place, well greased, to want to get rid of the pain or to want to get the pleasure. But we can see that feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, and even if it goes into wanting to get rid of the pain or to get the pleasure, we can start to train the mind to see that as just a natural process. Oh yeah, being a human being means we're going to have pleasure and pain. Sometimes we watch the news or we, when told me about another one of these examples of, uh, you know, what it is, especially of of, uh, African-American or a black man in our culture. And so somebody was sitting, I don't know if this happened while you were on retreat or right before the retreat began, but just a few days ago. And I think in a hotel in California and, you know, just he was coming back to the hotel where he was staying a little bit late and uh, got a call from his mom. So instead of, you know, doing the elevator's room, he just sat down in the lobby to take because he was concerned, you know, that his mom was calling him. And, uh, you know, how these things go. Security guard comes up, thinks the guy's loitering or something, you know, and basically calls the manager over, calls the police, police come, you know, and he leaves. He, they ask him to leave. And they, it, <laughs> they had the wherewithal to record the whole thing. You can watch it after the retreat. It's just another one of these um, heartbreaking just just like in your face for me as a white person about how it is, right? And um, so to see that this exposure that comes with being a human being, whether we're, you know, a person being oppressed or being mistreated or we're aware of that, right? So there's going to be that feeling, whatever, even now, hearing about the story, there's going to be some feeling, and that feeling, not always, but is likely to trigger some wanting. And it's all natural, right? But what, when we feel that movement, let's call it desire, so we're sensitive, which means we're feeling pleasure, neutrality, and pain, The essence of every experience is how does it feel? Neutral, pleasant, painful, somewhere along that that spectrum, right? And then whatever the feeling of the experience, 
sight is a, an experience, a sound, hearing a sound is an experience, having a thought is an experience. So every single moment we're having so many experiences, each of them has a particular feeling. Each feeling, inevitably, because of the way our heart is conditioned, there's going to be a movement because of the feeling. Movement into action, intention, you could call it, volition. And then there's something else there, like either understanding or misunderstanding. Either clarity about what that experience of contact and feeling and that movement of desire is, or what it or misunderstanding it, misperceiving it. And what the Buddha says it is, it's well it's nature. It's what happens. It's just exactly what's being experienced, not more nor less than what that sensitive person or that wisdom, that clarity sees or knows. That's what it is. Not the mental interpretation of it. Because that mental interpretation of, oh, I felt this, I want this, I'm going to do this, I've become the one who's done that, that wrapped up at the story, that's well greased, right? Because we're used to interpreting contact, sense experience, the pleasantness or unpleasantness, or neutrality of sense experience, the desire that arises, the action that arises out of the desire, the sense of having done something, become somebody who did something. We're very deeply ingrained to interpret that as me. But that's totally extra. It can be directly experienced as just those physical, mental activities operating naturally in conjunction, you know, interdependently with one another. And that's what we have to see over and over again, right, until letting go happens, right? The letting go of misunderstanding. It's really the misunderstanding that is let go of. The misunderstanding about contact, the misunderstanding about the feeling that comes with sense experience, what in Buddhism we call contact. That's what contact means, just some sense impingement, whether it's through the eye or the ear or thought, smell, taste, touch. So there's contact, inevitable feeling, triggering intention, wanting, doing, becoming somebody who's done something. Right, And wherever, however far along that sort of natural, conditional process, we can wake up and realize it's just that experience being known. It doesn't sound very impactful when you hear it this way, but when you really train, when you really get interested, you have the, this third part of the insight, which is craving has been abandoned. We always want to jump to, I don't want to be attached anymore. I don't want to be identified. I know, like I have enough sense to know that the unpleasantness, the unpleasant contraction that I'm walking around with, I have enough sense to know that it's somehow related to being attached, being identified. I know I need to let go. But what we don't see in that experience that we've just repeated. So now the contact is me being attached, that's the sense, and it's an unpleasant feeling, and it triggers 
wanting to not be attached, which leads to action, me trying to let go, becoming the one who's trying to let go, becoming the one who's born into that cycle of suffering. I want to let go, but I can't let go. Life is so frustrating, right? So that, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the thing that came before. So you can't, we can't sort of um, go directly to letting go because it's the self trying to solve the problem of self. But the problem is misunderstanding that whole, that end of the equation, the one that's become. That isn't what it appears to be. Somebody who's got a problem to solve. So if we're addressing the you know, ache in our heart from the point of view of a somebody who wants to be free of suffering, it will never work. This is why this practice is so infuriating. Because we try to do this practice with self-view. And this is one of these chicken and egg things that's really apparent in the way the Buddha taught, because... This is a wisdom practice. We need wisdom up front, but we don't have the wisdom up front. You know, yet we need the wisdom up front. Right? We need to do the practice in a selfless way. So the way the Buddha got around this is he told a lot of selves, like us, you know, to be mindful. But when he tells us to be mindful, he doesn't say, you know, hey, you drop the sense of self, because you can't really be mindful from a self point of view. But mindfulness, like the reason why mindfulness is such a powerful instruction is we kind of get it from the self point of view. Oh yeah, I can be aware of the present moment, right? But when we actually start practicing being aware of the present moment, we realize unconsciously, we stumble upon like to really do it, I have to temporarily put aside my selfing because it gets in the way of being intimate. It's just like if you're going to, you know, rock climb or dance or, you know, do something wholeheartedly. You know, if the teacher said to you, you know, get rid of your sense of self, you'd be there dancing, thinking, okay, stop taking this personally. But if the teacher says, you know, really relax into the movement, you know, just, you know, what what is that Nike advertisement? Just do it, right? Go with the flow or, you know. Well, eventually, you know, whether we're doing music or dance or rock climbing or whatever it might be, we'll start to have these moments because of the wholeness of the heart, the mind's presence, the extra thing that wasn't really helping of me, the idea of me doing it, the idea of me, hey, I really need to be wholehearted, right? Like to be wholehearted, we have to drop the idea that I should be wholehearted. So it's kind of a trick. The the emphasis on being present is a trick to start having experiences without the mind dominated by the construction of self, of being a part, of being the one who's doing 
awareness, the one who's doing the mindfulness. Right? So like we don't do it so much here, but you know, some of the ways that some of us have practiced in the Mahasi Sayada tradition, which comes out of Burma, you know, where they really want you to note every be noting in every moment whatever it is that's predominant. So the mind over time, when it learns to relax but be persistent enough, it's really each moment something is being recognized as something being known, something being known, something being known. And if if the mind is willing to do that, then it has to drop the activity of constructing a sense of self, you know, I want to be a good yogi, so there's contact. I'm on retreat. It's like this. Wanting arises, desire. I want to do it right. I want to please the teacher. I want to be the best. I want nibbana. What am I going to do? I'm going to really name. You know, I'm going to really note every experience. I'm not going to miss a moment. Right? We become the hardcore practitioner. We also become constipated and tight, and you know. Not very fun to be around. But, but that's like that whole, that's how it generally goes. And after doing that enough times, you know, the practitioner, you know, and then talking to the teacher who says, hopefully, hey, relax, you know, that being wholehearted doesn't be, require tightness. And that's not, not just true with this, it's probably true on almost any endeavor to become a real pro, to be a real expert to be really good at something, it doesn't involve tightness. Because tightness keeps the mind from that wholeness. Like what really allows somebody to be good at anything is they're doing it in a whole way. They're not doing this extra thing with, I'm somebody who wants to do it in a whole way. So this is the real trick in this second noble truth there is a cause, it's right here. There's this natural dynamic. Oh yeah, and, and observing the natural dynamic, I'm really seeing the linchpin of suffering, which is this feeling like I gotta get in there, I gotta do something, that it's personal. Right? It's like we're the mind got in the habit of inserting something, constructing something. It's totally understandable, you know, that also was a lawful arising, but it turns out to be the cause for existential suffering, the tightness that we, the burden that we carry along with us. So when, and then, and then the key is not to lose the practice of awareness. So then when we start to see the cause, we don't flip back into the old mode of becoming a somebody who doesn't want to be attached. Oh, I finally got it. This is what's wrong. I want to be the one who doesn't do that anymore. Right? And that's that, like I said, is what makes the practice so frustrating. So that thing we need to remember is the awareness piece. And in this place in particular, the patience, right? The endurance, like just willing to keep seeing what's being seen. Attachment should be abandoned. Attachment isn't helping. Attachment is co- correlates with tightness. Being identified never helps anybody. Being attached doesn't help. 
Now, if you think it helps, really keep studying it because understanding clearly helps, right? So having clarity is a good thing, but clarity is not the same as attachment. Attachment or identification or grasping comes with misunderstanding. So it's, it's not the same as clarity. A lot of times we think that, that grasping arises out of clarity, but it really arises out of misunderstanding. But it's very subtle. It's so common for the mind. It's so institutionalized in the mind to frame things personally. It's that, and especially pain, especially suffering, to frame it personally. It takes a lot of confidence because this is, this the mind doesn't know. So it has to practice something without direct experience. You know, a lot of what we hear in practice is like, oh yeah, I'm, I know that from my own experience. But, this is one of those places where either just because we have faith in the teacher or it makes intellectual sense to us or everybody else is doing it, we're willing to give it a go. But we have to give it a go sincerely. Like we really have to practice, you know, how hard it is, all of us, we all know this, like just sitting. This is why the form of sitting still is so useful. You know, we're just sitting there there's contact, it's unpleasant, let's say. That unpleasantness is triggering the desire to do something and to become, you know, to become the one who's doing something to fix this. And all we're doing, we're putting all the eggs and just seeing it over and over again. Yeah, yeah, now it's like this. The impulse is there, the compulsion is there, the desire to bolt, the desire to fix, the desire to blame. You know, but we're just seeing it, seeing all of that moment by moment as natural phenomena. Something is being known. This is being known. Now this is being known. This is being known. And it initially, from our old frame, is really going to see seem as an exercise in helplessness. How can this help? All I seem to be doing is reinforcing the perception that I'm screwed, that I'm caught, that I'm suffering. You know, it feels not helpful. So this is where the patience and the faith is really important. And you know what really drives the faith is, I don't have any better plan. You know, we've been so beaten up by trying to fix it that we're willing to have some humility. I'll try this because I don't have a better plan. So I'm just going to stick with this. And then it it's so amazing when we get that third insight of the second noble truth, craving has been abandoned. And the beginnings of the third noble truth, there is an end to suffering. There is a release, a surprising release, an unexpected release. Because it that's what I meant. What kept us at it wasn't that we knew what to expect. We just knew what didn't work. And we had some confidence in the teachings or in a teacher to check it out. Check it out, right? Ehipasiko, check it out. It's like, we don't know. We have to sort of take a step 
into the unknown here and, and basically rely on whatever motivates us to check it out sincerely. And the thing is, a lot of us dabble, but we don't really check it out. And what, do we, what gets confirmed? doesn't help. Because we haven't been willing to be really clear and patient and exposed. Oh, yeah. Right? Because what are we watching? The cause of suffering. So how do we imagine that's going to feel? <laughs> you know, it's like we're not bothering with any defenses because any defenses, defenses, any defensive action, construction of the mind would be distortion, obscuration. We wouldn't be seeing it clearly. And we have to see it clearly. We need the exposure. This is why we work with, you know, we do what we can to create enough comfort, enough safety. You know, it, sitting is not meant to be torture. We should be sitting relatively comfortably for at least part of the set. Because it's really at that place where we don't feel completely or even partially overwhelmed that we have insight. Once we're overwhelmed, we don't have insight. So once we're overwhelmed, the appropriate practice would be how can I bring my heart back into balance? What can, what can be done to bring the heart back in balance? And you know, that's at least 50%, maybe 50 to 80, 50 to 90% of our retreat is bringing the heart, the mind into balance. And then 10% or more is like the heart being in balance. Can I be right at that place where I see contact, I see the reaction, the intention that arises out of contact, how it can lead to becoming, right, to grasping and becoming. <clears throat> and I practice seeing it with right view. So, because now this is where the pointing out instructions are really important, right? Honey, you normally see that, you normally frame that, interpret that as happening to me, but train your mind to see it with right view, right? So we get that information conceptually and then we apply it right in that space directly, immediately in our experience. This is nature. This is not self. Contact is nature. Feeling tone is nature. Intention is nature. Grasping, clinging is nature. Becoming somebody who's done something is nature. The suffering of being somebody who did something, who wants more, wants less, that suffering is nature too. Next contact, that's nature, right? So we're just boom, 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 boom. As the flow of experience and everything that the experience sets in motion happens over and over again, it doesn't matter when we get distraction because distracted because there's going to be another moment of contact in a moment. And we just catch the next moment. Contact, feeling, intention, Grasping, doing something, becoming somebody, being tight as that somebody. Oh yeah, that's how, that's, that's how suffering happens. Oh yeah, I get a little bit deeper. Like uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you know, you've got to do something, you have to see something clearly, understand something clearly 10,000 times in order to become an expert. And it's like, it's impactful when we have one moment where we see it clearly. That's an impactful moment on retreat. If we have a couple of those moments, right? So it takes some time to get to 10,000. <laughs> Where 
we're, we get to kind of play in the third noble truth. There is the release of suffering. There is the experience of a heart, a mind, not distorted by suffering, not distorted by grasping. What is the mind free of craving, right? That's one of the uh, <coughs> accessible, all of the definitions of Nibbana are pretty straightforward from the early Buddhist tradition. So the cessation of craving or the cessation of the activity of greed, anger, and delusion, right? the cessation of craving. So what, what do we know? We know the mind with craving, that helps. So what's the mind? I mean, this is even as an intellectual exercise now. What is this heart when there's no craving? Now, it's subtle because like we might, oh, the heart's kind of numb. So numb, I don't care. But we don't realize there's a little uh, selfing there. Like the attachment to the idea there's nothing that I'm stuck. This is all there is. It's like the craving, the attachment. It's like uh, one flavor that I, the word I use sometimes or a phrase I use is sort of like a free fall because the pervasiveness of attachment, the pervasiveness of grasping, of identifying, of this pattern of contact, feeling, intention, Grasping, becoming, suffering. The pervasive, it's like our, our exoskeleton or our skeleton, you know, it kind of gives the experience that we call me its sort of form and structure. So, who we are actually is the reverberation of suffering. So, when the suffering of craving, when the structure of craving momentarily falls away, then we don't know who we are. It's like a free fall. It can even initially be scary when people have moments of awakening, moments of freedom. Ordinary, this isn't necessarily that extraordinary in the spiritual sense. It can, and there can be sort of a, a rush back, a compulsive rush back to attachment, clinging, right? Because I had a somewhat drug-induced awakening experience a long, long time ago. Um, And uh, for (laughs) weeks afterward, I noticed I was just like, my mind was just grasping at attachments. It was like, I just got really good. It's like, what kind of food can I bring to mind and want? What kind of relationship can I bring to mind and want? Because I was so, uh, there was like this reverberation of fear of not existing, not being somebody. So I was like, I really observed my mind over and over again, trying to put myself together. And what I observed is I was using attachment to put myself together. Attachment to safety, attachment to comfort, attachment to relationships, and mostly like in my mind, like bringing relationships to mind and feeling the attachment, bringing sense comfort, sense experience, pleasurable sense experiences to mind and remembering that I like that. I like that. I want that. That's nice. 
that was nice in the past, it will be nice in the future. And basically trying to put my, a sense of me back together. Because, you know, this is why, you know, drugs, you know, some hallucinogens can sort of loosen the screws. But they can also lead to opening experiences before the wisdom is sort of caught up and knows what to do with it. And then you sort of get into fear states for (laughs) who knows how long, you know, because it wears, it kind of goes away slowly. So this, this whole path the Buddha sets out is a very organic, it's like, okay, get really wholehearted about present moment awareness. And the first thing, one of the first things you're going to start noticing is just the psychic weight that we, like a backpack, that we are always there, just a little anxious, a little lonely, a little uneasy, a little whatever it is, right? Ah, this is interesting. This should be understood. I should get to know this, right? I do. I've really done the work to become intimate with dukkha. Ah, there's something more subtly at work here. There's this internal process that somehow is related to that psychic weight I call dukkha. There's a cause, this attachment, this identification with the movement of the heart, intention, right? desire. But it's the identification, it's the misunderstanding of the movement. Being a living being means there's going to be movements all the time. The heart's going to be moved. That's what happens when we're sensitive. The heart's moved. But that movement is nature, not self. And that's really that patient place of looking at the cause, getting intimate with the cause, being interested in the cause until it falls away. Because when we're interested in the cause, we're not identified. It's like that's that trick again. If we can train the mind, encourage the mind to be wholeheartedly interested, you can't be interested and presuming it's me or mine at the same time. When we're really valuing awareness, we're willing to put aside any idea of what we're observing, including that it's my experience. We just want to open to it as it is. And see that, then we see the cause without identifying with the cause. We see the identification or the attachment without being attached to it. So that means we see it as nature, not self. When it's seen as nature and not self, letting go happens. Letting go is a natural thing. Nobody ever lets go. Nobody ever lets go. So whenever you feel badly about not letting go, remind yourself, nobody ever lets go. Nobody ever lets go of suffering. Nobody ever lets go of suffering. Letting go happens when the mind sees the activity of suffering as nature and not self. Because suffering depends on misunderstanding. Suffering depends on misunderstanding what it is. The Buddha says the cause of suffering is not understanding it. So we watch it, we observe it, we see it over and over again until we see the process of identifying the process of attachment without being attached to what we're seeing, without 
personalizing what we're seeing. We see the process of attachment without personalizing it. Attachment, identification, is just another thing in the forest. It's just another thing the mind does. Oh yeah, that's what the mind does. It takes things personally. But we don't personalize that. And then the whole thing falls apart. And the third noble truth, which you know we don't really need to talk about because it's just the maturing of that second noble truth, right? Where we're integrating the reality of release. We're learning to abide with the mind free of grasping, the mind free of craving. First, we have to have the experience, get clear about that experience of a mind free of craving. We get flavors of it, surprisingly, when there's a lot of strong love. So even not, I'm not even talking about concentrated states like deep absorption and metta practice, but just a very wholesome love, not, not like an attached love, just a very generous love. Because in that state of love, the mind, it, because it's such a pleasant emotional state, that kind of non-attached love, the mind is willing to abide, it's willing to drop the selfing because it feels so full with the wholesomeness, the pleasantness of that emotional state, that selfing ceases for a while. So we get a little flavor, as, as we do also with deeper states of concentration. But those states of love and states of deeper concentration come and go. Right? They're dependent on particular circumstances. But it gives us some confidence of how light, how free, how unobstructed our heart can be. And that allows us, that gives us confidence to sort of do the work of wisdom. So I'll leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. Feeling the sensitive heart. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.